We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. I'm so excited about today's guest. Maximilian Alvarez is the editor-in-chief of The Real News Network and the host of Working People, a podcast about the lives, jobs, dreams, and struggles of the working class today. His work has been featured in a range of outlets, including The Nation, In These Times, Boston Review, Truth Out, and The Baffler. He has a book of interviews coming out in early 2022 with Orr Books titled The Work of Living, Working People Talk About Their Lives and the Year the World Broke. Max, thanks so much for joining us. Emily, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, of course. Um, And and Max, I, I read your publication all of the time now, and I think what it does so well is amplify the voices of people in the working class in a way that few other publications are able to do, and at a time when that's you know as important as you could possibly imagine. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? You know how you got to this place where you really have the privilege um, of skillfully chronicling the struggles of the working class and this deindustrialization, this period of deindustrialization, and in 2022. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And and thank you for those kind words. I really do appreciate it. And you're absolutely right. Um, it is a privilege and an honor to get to do what I do. And I'm very fortunate to be doing it. And uh, I count myself very lucky to be working with the incredible team that we have here at The Real News. You know, before this, I was um, working as an editor at the Chronicle of Higher Education down there in D.C., And I wasn't exactly looking to jump ship uh, from a good job uh, in the middle of a pandemic. But when I was presented with the opportunity uh, to apply for the editor in chief job here at The Real News, um, I couldn't pass that up, mainly because of the people who were here. And, you know, I think that, you know, as you as you well know, right, you know, we're we're all kind of struggling in the digital era to find sustainable ways to support our media operations. And that makes places like the real news with an actual studio and a staff um, increasingly hard to find. And so I was kind of blown away to see something like that still existing in the wild uh, in general. But on top of that, you know, knowing the, the reputation of the real news for that sort of on the ground coverage of, you know, people and struggles happening at the front lines of, you know, the the fight against uh, exploitation, the fight against climate change and prison industrial complex and, and all manner of issues, you know, was was very attractive to me. And, you know, I would say my own path to doing this kind of work was definitely a winding one. Um, you know, I've, I've mentioned uh, even at times when, when we've been, been on the, the hill together that, you know, I grew up in Southern California, very Catholic, very conservative. Um, and my dad, who's a Mexican immigrant, you know, when he became a citizen, the first president he ever voted for was Ronald Reagan. So like we were very much kind of raised in that sort of Reaganite brand of conservatism in Orange County, kind of in many ways, the heart of the Reagan revolution. And, you know, that was at a very peculiar time in this country's history, right? After the end of the Cold War, um, after, you know, like this this kind of long 20th century struggle between these two kind of great powers, it finally seemed that, you know, capitalism had won, the United States had kind of emerged victorious. Um, and then, you know, the population was really kind of coasting on this dot-com boom and, uh, you know, real estate boom. And so it felt very much like, you know, that dream that my father came here to this country to realize was still attainable, right? That that great American dream. And I don't think people are wrong to want that. I don't think my dad was wrong to want that. I wanted that. We all did. And, you know, I think that um a lot of that came crumbling down during the great recession Mm. um you know that was really i think the point where i started to reevaluate my my worldview just kind of based on what our family was going through what i was seeing going on around me um you know like for many other families millions of other families you know we lost everything in the recession including the house that i grew up in and when i graduated from college in 2009, 
you know, that was not a particularly good time to uh, get spat out into the job market. <laughs> and so, um, you know, on top of everything kind of going south at home and that causing a lot of kind of problems with our family, you know, my dad was depressed. My mom was depressed. I was depressed. None of us were talking about it because again, it's like, because of, of the values that we had held for so long, you know, we saw the recession not as a grand sort of systemic failure that impacted millions and millions of people around the world. We only saw it as a deeply personal failure that we had lost everything that we had worked for. And we were punishing ourselves for that for so many years. And I, 10 years ago to, to this day was, um, you know, I thought I would be helping out back home after college um, while I was figuring out my next move. And instead I found myself working 12 hour days as a temp in warehouses and factories in Southern California, uh, you know, with a, with two useless college degrees at that point. And I was working amongst, you know, a bunch of um, ex convicts and other temps and some undocumented folks. And, you know, we would just get into conversations about how we all ended up there and what was going on in our lives. And, I think it was, I, I go in this much detail because it was a slow process over those many years of accrued conversations where I started to see things a little bit differently. I started to see hardworking people who had been given a raw deal, who weren't getting the support that they needed, whether that be from their employer, from their government, from their community, people who were really trying to live the right way and achieve their dreams and, and follow the law, you know, all those things that I grew up believing in, but who were still finding themselves at the bottom of the barrel, all the while we were all hearing on the news um, during the Obama administration that the recovery was great, you know, and things were turning around and we were looking around like, well, who's it turning around for, right? So, um, you know, fast forwarding, uh, I started my show Working People, I, I've joked about this. I kind of did it as a ruse to get my dad to talk about what he had been through because he mm -hmm. wasn't talking about it. And so the very first episode was me talking for two hours with my dad, not just about the recession and losing the house, but about his life growing up dirt poor in Tijuana, um, coming to the United States, being separated from his siblings and put in foster care, meeting my mom, having his kids, you know, attaining that dream and losing it. And then eventually voting for Donald Trump in, in 2016. He had talked to me more openly in that conversation than he had for like the, the five, six years prior to that. And there was something very powerful in that to me that that the thought of other workers and other people out there potentially hearing his story made him more willing to share it. And I think he himself got motivation for doing that because he was driving, you know, Uber and Lyft to, to pay the bills and he was trying to keep his ratings up. So he would talk to his passengers. And it was only then that he realized that he was driving people who were his age, who were also, you know, immigrants who had lost their homes or who were on their way to their second or third job. No matter how many times we as his family told him it wasn't all his fault, it took him talking to other working people outside of our family to start to realize the truth of that. And so I realized there's a real power in workers sharing their stories with each other. But I also realize at the same time just how few opportunities we have to do that kind of storytelling and provide a platform for people to share their stories that openly and vulnerably. And so that's why I started the podcast that led into the kind of writing that I did and ultimately led me to the real news where I get to do that uh, with an amazing team that's just as dedicated to that kind of work as I am. You know, something about that story really makes me think about how the the mythology around the American dream, especially in the Reagan years and in the post-Reagan years, sort of around that end of history dot com bubble uh, time period, is the way in which we've allowed that mythology to sort of obfuscate the reality that has gradually deteriorated for working people around the country. And I think that's something conservatives were sort of blind to until the Trump phenomenon kind of opened up people's eyes and you broke the relationship with, say, the Chamber of Commerce, as uh, it was declared this week. And we'll see how long that lasts. But um, there are a lot more conservatives paying attention to these issues and, and paying attention to corporate America's um, not only sort of their, their conduct, 
um, on the world stage or on the national stage, but their treatment of their workers, their, their conduct uh, with their own employees. And that's something that needs to increase, certainly, and needs to increase on, on the left and the right. But Max, can you tell us some of the basic things that people might not know about in terms of the, the average sort of working conditions at like an Amazon factory at a Kroger? And we're going to talk more about Kroger in a little bit. But is it is it uh, what are some of the main ways and main avenues that workers are being taken advantage of, um, whether it's by some of these ride-sharing companies or whether it's by um, scheduling, you know, not being scheduled on shifts, getting strung, strung really thin um, and, and not having consistency or anything like that. What people, what might people not realize about how corporations are taking advantage of people today? So I think it's a great question, right? Because, um, you know, again, I guess just like thinking about how my own thinking on this has evolved both as an observer and a consumer and as a worker, right? Um, you know, I think that in that period of the 90s and early 2000s, right, there was still, uh, I think, a very genuine belief among the majority of people in this country um, that, you know, again, after the end of the Cold War, capitalism had emerged dominant. And so that was the kind of paradigm that we were working within, what allowed people, especially people like my family, who who really believed in in the message that Ronald Reagan, um, you know, like got across in the 1980s and in many ways shaped the entire kind of political arena for the Democratic and Republican parties uh, in the 90s. You know, it, it, it wasn't a bad dream to have. There's a reason a lot of people um, found it very appealing, because what the promise was, was that. You know, if you sort of, quote unquote, unleash, you know, the forces of the free market, yeah, people are going to get rich off it, but the pie is going to be so big that everyone gets a piece as long as they work hard for it. Right. And, um, you know, again, that's that's something that I think made a lot of sense to a lot of people. And um, I think that one of the things that has really changed over the past 20 years of my life is that 20 years ago, if I saw working class people in low wage jobs, um, struggling to make ends meet. Again, my primary assumption would be that they hadn't worked hard enough to get themselves out of that situation or that there was something in their backstory that justified them living a more economically depressed and disadvantaged and exploited existence. Right. And that fused a lot with my Catholicism growing up. Right. You know, Catholic with Catholicism, you kind of see the cosmos, made by God as a sort of just and righteous system that's occupied by people with free will who make bad choices and need to sort of make better choices and, and, you know, attain forgiveness and stuff like that. What I, again, through the sort of meat grinder of the um, recession, I started to see is I started to see more a sort of um, rigged system that, that was trapping good, hardworking people in what Bernie Sanders famously called a race to the bottom, right? So that's, again, what I started to see more of in my own, you know, jobs as a waiter, as a factory temp, uh, you know, and retail worker and all that stuff was I was like, well, these aren't bad people, right? These people work hard. They're very good at what they do. They develop a lot. You, ever, you know, everyone develops a lot of really um, idiosyncratic skills to perform the, the jobs that they do at a high level. Um, but yet what I started to realize, as my family did, and as I think many others have over the past decade, is that it's not just all up to your hard work because you are, in fact, um, you know, the game is being rigged by people who kind of want to keep us in that sort of uh, bottom tier with very few opportunities to advance to that comfortable middle class existence that was supposed to be part of the social contract. Right. You work hard, you make your way up that way. That was the bargain. Um, and I think that what a lot of people may not realize, um, and I understand that, you know, I'm, I'm speaking to uh, an audience who may have very different politics um, from me, but I do think that especially over the past uh, two years with this pandemic and the wave of labor unrest and the strikes and all record numbers of people voluntarily quitting their jobs, I think it's at least forced a lot more people to realize that 
well, crap, maybe there is like something broken here. And, you know, these people are working hard to not only do the jobs that keep the gears of commerce and society turning, but they're also dealing with a whole lot of other stuff, as we all are, like juggling, you know, a, a public health crisis, right? Juggling right. childcare. Um, if you're working at home remotely and your students are going to school remotely, like they're working people have shown their mettle, I think, and they have not been adequately compensated. I was about to say rewarded, but it's not a reward. It's a, it's compensation for the work that people do fair and just compensation that um, actually assures that, you know, people who are working their butts off um, can make a decent, comfortable living. And that's not the case with so many folks, because um, what we're seeing instead is that, you know, for the past 40 years, for the majority of workers, wages have been stagnant. Right. And um, and yet workers have become more productive in this country than ever before. Um, American workers are some of the longest working work, some of the longest hours in the developed world. And yet the more that we've been working, um, the more that productivity has increased and the more uh, revenue that the, our labor has generated, what we have seen is that, um, you know, we are building that pie, we're increasing that pie, but instead of more of that pie going to more people, more of it is getting siphoned off uh, at the top and we're finding ourselves caught in more mousetrap uh, situations where, um, you know, wages are in fact, not keeping up with inflation. And so a lot of workers are actually taking pay cuts, you know, every year, cost of living, cost of housing goes up to say nothing of people who are burdened with student debt. So, you know, you get the point, right? It's like workers are doing their part. They're working hard. They've been working hard. The statistics show it. Um, but for many years, people have only seen a lot of those gains going to the upper echelons of society. And I think that that is where you really started to get this sort of popular sentiment breaking with the political status quo. And it kind of resulted in people both gravitating towards the political messages of Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, because they were saying, you're getting screwed over and working people are saying, yeah, we are. And let's talk about the specific example of Kroger. Um, and we talked about this on the Hill the other day, but it, it just struck me as a perfect sort of example, a perfect case study. This is from BuzzFeed. Quote, after ticking slightly upward from 2019 to 2020, Kroger's annual revenue rose 8% in 2021 to $132 billion. Senior executives each made $5 million or more in 2020, with CEO Rodney McMullen earning $22 million, which is nearly double his 2018 pay. All right. So, Max, this is a good case study because there's also a poll uh, that came out recently about Kroger workers. I think 14 percent of them rely on SNAP benefits. Um, you have a lot of them who just basically in this in the survey talked about specific ways that they're struggling to kind of make ends meet. And to your point, there there did used to be this assumption. And of course, in isolated cases, it's, it is true that, you know, maybe some people are, are not um, at the highest levels of compensation because they haven't worked hard enough or whatever it is. But oh my gosh, when you look at wealth distribution over time in this country, when you look at examples like Kroger or like Amazon um, and a number of other corporations over the course of the pandemic, where their, their wealth um, and their value has increased dramatically, this Kroger one stands out. How is it possible that you have uh, executives sort of comfortable in this day and age nearly doubling their pay, um, revenue rising 8% and uh, still having so many struggling workers? <laughs> it's like, um, I guess the sad answer is that, um, you know, the latter proves the former, right? It's kind of, it's by underpaying their workers by actually systematically designing Kroger and all of its subsidiaries, you know, to have a sort of system that depends on, you know, keeping workers in this kind of precarious situation. Um, that's part of their model. Right. And I think that that's what, you know, people on the right and left can can uh, sympathize with. Um, because they're actually not hiding it, right? I mean, the CEO, Rodney McMullen, like, has been very adamant in the time since he took the the top job, right, that he's going to be innovating and, and kind of uh, changing things up from the corporate office on down. And that translates to 
these little fine grain um adjustments to how things are done at the at the shop floor level and king supers workers are really putting that front and center because as you mentioned this this really um massive survey that was commissioned by the ufcw uh the united food and commercial workers um it was carried out by the economic roundtable right it gives us a lot of data to look at it has as you mentioned some pretty shocking revelations about was it like three-fourths i think you said of of the kroger workforce as represented in this survey, uh, count themselves as food insecure. Um, and uh, one thing that really struck me is that um, over, I think over 85% of workers surveyed said that Kroger is their main employer, their only employer. And so I, I focus on that because I think there's something really interesting and, and crucial here that and you, speaks and, to- And Max, yeah. by the way, we should say you have done a lot of reporting on the specific Kroger example. Yeah. So, well, and I think the thing, you know, one thing to, to emphasize, which I think um, people probably know at their gut level, but it's worth um, pointing out that, um, you know, the first time I had seen a Kroger was when I moved to Michigan and was living there. And I was like, oh, there it is. Right. <laughs> but in fact, we all know Kroger because Kroger has been gobbling up uh, so many chains around the country, including King Supers out there in like the Denver uh, area. Um, you know, in my neck of the woods back home, Ralph's is owned by Kroger. Um, so is City Market, Dylan's, Food for Less, Food Co., Fred Meyer. You get the point, right? So they they own a lot of these different chains. Um, and kind of gobbling up more and more of their competitors has actually been a crucial part of Rodney McMullen's growth strategy. In fact, when they acquired Harris Teeter, they did so to acquire some of the technology, the digital technology that Harris Teeter was developing so they could basically absorb it and use it across their different, um, uh, the different chains that they own. But anyway, we don't have to go in, into that. But I say that to say that, um, yeah, through working people, and through the real news, you know, I've talked to a number of workers at Kroger's. Uh, I've talked to workers at Ralph's. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, a lot of their stories kind of echo each other. The one that was honestly one of probably the hardest working people episode I've ever recorded was with the family of uh, Evan Seyfried, uh, who was a, a Kroger employee for nearly 20 years um, in Ohio. He was a dedicated employee. He was someone who cared about his coworkers. He's actually on record uh, advocating for coworkers who were being sexually harassed. And he was demanding accountability from Kroger and also help from the union. You know, he stood up for his fellow workers. He cared deeply about the work that he did, hearing his family talk about how much pride Evan took in managing the dairy aisle and making sure that there was never any outdated dairy products there um, and that if any customer needed help, they got it. Right. I mean, he's, he's the kind of guy you want working for you. Right. And he had worked there for 20 years and he managed to get his own place because of it. And he was still taking care of his family. You know, his folks told me about all this. And I, I guess, a, you know, kind of warning up front to people it gets very dark very quickly, because according to a lawsuit filed by Evan's family, Evan himself was bullied by his managers at his uh, Ohio store into committing suicide. And um, the story they lay out is harrowing. You can read about it. Um, the Washington Post reported on it. But the reason I kind of mentioned that is that the family actually says we feel that we saw Evan and heard Evan talk about the changes that were happening in Kroger. And this was no longer the type of store that he recognized because all they cared about was increasing sales and maximizing profits and the new managers who were, who were, you know, bullying Evan allegedly, according to the court filings, um, corporate office, you know, uh, and, and, um, human resources, like they didn't really care. They, they, they sure as heck, acted like they didn't care when they heard the complaints from Evan and his co-workers about the abuse that they were uh, receiving because the sales in that store were up. And so the family says is like, we firmly believe that this corporate focus that does not care about the lives of the people who actually make Kroger profits happen is what contributed to our son not getting the help that he needed when he most needed it. And now he's no longer here with us. But, you know, to, I guess, kind of uh, um, take that into the other response to, to your question, 
Um, cause I mentioned the scheduling, right? I wanted, I wanted to make sure I hit that point. And I know I'm talking a lot and I apologize. No, no, no. The, sque- the scheduling is such a great point. And every time I hear you talk about it, I think it's really, it, 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 it explains a lot. It does. Right. Because I mean, again, I'm, uh, I, I switch back and forth between my former conservative self and my current lefty nut job <laughs> self. And, and like, <laughs> think about how I would interpret each of these two things. Right. Because when I see, the report based on the survey that we're talking about here. And I see that over 85% of Kroger workers say that it is their sole employer. And yet they're also living food insecure and they're not getting enough hours and pay that they need. Again, the former conservative side of me would say, well, why don't they get another job? Um, Or why don't they leave that job? And the survey actually gives us some interesting hints as to why that's not the case. Um, because one of the managerial top-down strategies that has been implemented that has contributed to increased productivity and increased profits for Kroger corporate, but increased misery and financial instability for Kroger workers is something that, look, if you've ever worked a, a retail job or, or you know a fast food job or, or a low-wage job, you know what it's like to not have your schedule until like, the Sunday before the week starts or even the day before you're supposed to go into work. And that's what Kroger has actually implemented, you know, like as a strategy is to basically keep switching people's schedules around. You might think, well, like that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like, why wouldn't you just say like, all right, well, here are people who are going to be on for these hours, these days, we can bank on that and move on to other things. So there must be something there to that strategy. And I think that this survey really bears that out because it keeps people basically unable to have other jobs. Because if you don't know what your schedule is, my brother's this way. He worked at multiple franchises um, for a restaurant in Southern California. And since they were franchises, it didn't count as overtime when he worked over 40 hours a week. But he also had to basically make the two different schedules sync up so that he could make it physically to the two different jobs. At Kroger, you're not allowed to really do that because you don't know what your schedule is going to be, you know, like on a week to week basis. So how the heck are you going to get another job um, that allows you to you know, make ends meet if you can't tell that other job when your availability is right? And so it kind of closes off that that other avenue that you might have. And then people might say, well, why don't they do gig work or, you know, ride share driving? Well, like taking aside the sort of you know, pandemic era restrictions on those types of jobs, that is also another arena where we have sort of created a race to the bottom. You know, the, in, in um, uh, when the pandemic began, ship shoppers um, across the country, uh, shipped is the, the delivery ser- app-based delivery service that's used by Target and now owned by Target Corporation. Um, they changed their algorithms without really kind of telling anybody what they were doing. And what workers saw in the cities where they first implemented this was that their take-home pay was cut by sometimes 30, 40, even 50 percent. So like people who got into gig work to make some extra cash and actually did make some extra cash uh, earlier this decade have all said the same thing. They're like, our take-home rates are less and less and less. And the gig company's model is to basically keep bringing in new workers so they can keep driving rates down and all of us are actually making less. So anyway, it creates this sort of trap where you actually aren't able to get the hours and wages you need to live that comfortable, uh, sustainable existence that workers deserve. And that's actually part of what Kroger's like model has been. And it's really something that needs to stop. Yeah. And this is, and again, I'm sure Max and I would disagree on a lot of sort of specific policy proposals. I'm sure we would disagree on uh, the the overall uh, questions about unions and, and all of this stuff. But I feel like it is becoming increasingly undeniable, especially when you look at wealth distribution, especially when you look at, as Max pointed out, the differences between increases in productivity um, and stagnant wages that our uh, executives, our corporate class, uh, 
it is just not compensating and not treating workers properly. So, Max, can you tell us a little bit about, first of all, I'm sure you talk to a lot of workers and maybe even more workers who are increasingly sort of uh, supporting maybe not Republicans, but are sort of Trump-friendly, Trump-curious, or full in on the, the Trump bandwagon. But I'm curious what you're hearing from workers, just if you can, what are some of the top line concerns that you hear from them um, when it comes to their kind of everyday experience, um, you know, doing their jobs? So I think, um, you know, this is, I think it really behooves all of us, whether we're on the left, the right, independent, what have you, right, to look at the past year to try to put our sort of prejudices or ideological convictions aside and say, okay, we just went through something. And when I say we, I mean, you know, the American population, the world, but especially the American workforce, right? Because you do not have successive months in 2021 where each new month breaks the record for the number of workers in in the U.S. who have voluntarily quit their jobs. That doesn't happen unless there's like something going on under the surface. And same goes with um, the the strikes that we were seeing uh, across the country that that I reported on um, quite a bit over the past year at the Real News. Right, we reported on the. Um, strike at warrior met coal and that's happening in deep red alabama with a lot of conservative coal miners uh who have been on strike since um geez i think they've been on strike for nine months now um since april 1st i believe um that's 1100 coal miners and you know i, I would say just again for anyone listening there like they need help. Um, they are holding the line. And once again, like uh, King Supers, like Kroger, like Kellogg's, like so many other um, companies that we saw last year experiencing strike strikes, including John Deere. John Deere is a great example, right? Because if, if the numbers of of the for the profits and CEO pay at Kroger are staggering. Look at the numbers for John Deere, right? 10,000 workers uh, in multiple states uh, making farm equipment, you know, and also those workers were politically heterogeneous, a lot of non-voters, a lot of right-wing voters, a lot of left-wing voters, and so on and so forth. You had this mix of 10,000 workers who voted to go on strike, voted down two different contracts and voted to stay on the line. And they kept pointing to the fact that during a pandemic, they had made John Deere more profitable than it has ever been. We're talking $5.7 billion with a B in profits in 2021. And they are currently um, projected to outdo that this year. And yet the, the company was asking workers to take more concessions, right? So that's, again, what we're talking about here. More and more workers over the course of the pandemic who are quitting, who are going on strike, to say nothing of the workers who are trying to unionize, um, workers within unions who are trying to fix the problems with their unions by getting more rank and file democracy in there. A lot of stuff is happening. Mm. And I think that when it comes down to it, everyone has different reasons for doing what they do. But I think the general trends that I've been hearing from folks is, um, you know, look, we were called heroes a year ago. And now we're just told to shut up and get back to work and, you know, and, and, and we're taken for granted while our employers are raking in huge profits and actually they're making huge profits while like still marketing themselves as having heroes who work here. So it's like, you're not even really caring about us and the work that we're doing. And that's something that Kellogg's workers said they're the Kellogg's workers who went on strike 1400 of them. They were deeply proud of the work that they did. They were proud to feed America, especially during a pandemic. What they were pissed off about um, wasn't the fact that they were working 12, 14, 16 hour days of with forced overtime often working through the weekends, sometimes for for months on end, they were all okay with that for the most part. It sucked, but they were like, we're proud of the work we do. We're hard workers. We're going to keep doing it. But it's the fact that the company that has been raking in record um, revenues and seeing record demand uh, is trying to take more from us and they're not respecting us. I think that that's what it comes down to, whether you're right, left, or something else, right? It's not even super complicated. It has to do with respect. People don't feel respected. They feel taken advantage of. And yet they have seen also at the same time how essential they actually are. I think that's the sort of conundrum 
that a lot of uh, pundits have been trying to figure out is, uh, but it's really not that complicated, right? Workers have seen over the course of the pandemic that it's their work their labor that has kept society from falling apart. Whether or not they were called essential, they saw how essential their work was to keeping society from collapsing. And yet they have realized time and again that they live and labor in a system that values their labor, but not their lives. That is the thread that I've heard from coal miners in Alabama, again, who, who a lot of them are right wing and have gotten very little support from conservative politicians or pundits. They've said, we want to see our families. We're, we're tired of working so hard to make profits for this company, only to be told that we're not worth the kind of health care and retirement that we deserve for that work. Does that make sense? As our listeners know, we are unrepentant followers of celebrity trends and celebrity news at Federalist Radio Hour, but recently I learned something new about an under-the-radar investment that some of the ultra-wealthy have been quietly funneling their money into for generations, and as you can imagine, it really piqued my interest. Famous folks are, of course, known for touting their art collections, but you no longer have to be a coastal elite to invest in one of the oldest asset classes of all time, because Masterworks is making adding art to your portfolio possible. Masterworks gives investors, just like you, access to the asset class that had low correlation to the S&P 500 over the past two decades. Masterworks even achieved a 32% and 31% net return for investors based on the sale of a Banksy and condo piece in 2020 and 2021, respectively. Now, you don't have to be a hedge fund manager to invest in multi-million dollar paintings from iconic artists like Picasso, Warhol, and Banksy. And Masterworks has results. They've sold two paintings that netted their investors a 30% plus IRR in 2020 and 2021. Even better, our listeners get priority access to their newest offerings. Simply go to masterworks.io slash federalist to get started. That's masterworks.io slash federalist. Before deciding to invest, carefully review the important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. It absolutely does. And it echoes exactly what we heard from workers in Bessemer um, when it came to the Amazon thing, which is that they actually were not. Um, it, a lot of folks might, might think of the unionization drives as being very specifically about compensation um, and being very specifically about pay and, and health care. The Amazon workers, and, and you talked to them, Max, were saying they felt like widgets. They felt like they were be, being treated in this sort of subhuman way, as though they were just being treated as a part of machinery, um, that Amazon sort of surveils them to the extent that when they're on the job and, and in these warehouses, to the extent that they are uncomfortable taking bathroom breaks. Um, and they feel like they're, they feel like robots, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, they, they said as much, like you said, is like, you know, this isn't how you treat a human being um, and, and in, in multiple ways. Right. Because they were saying you don't treat human beings that way because we deserve dignity. Right. And, and, and you again, if you listen to workers, um, it could be the interviews I do, but it could be the interviews anyone does. It could be talk to your neighbors, talk to your coworkers. Right. But if we actually get down to that real level, right, it's real. It's stuff that we can all understand and probably sympathize with because we've experienced it ourselves. Right. When you say I'm, I'm more than a robot, I'm a human being. There's so many important registers that um, that, that, that that workers are kind of. Worker, when workers say that, there's so many registers that it applies to, because I remember some folks in Bessemer saying, I want to take just one vacation. I want my kid to see the beach for the first time. Like that's that that's all I'm asking for. I'm not asking for a second home. I just want to take my kid to see the beach. Um, like, I think I deserve that as a human being. Right. I don't think my whole purpose in life is just to do backbreaking work day in, day out, only to have enough energy to come home, eat a meal, take a shower, fall asleep on the couch, and then get up the next day and do it again. There's more to life than that. And that is a, a mood that I've kind of heard from workers, unionized workshops and non-unionized workshops is, um, and I think that the pandemic has really catalyzed that for a lot of people because a lot of people have been risking their lives. A lot of people have seen their coworkers. A lot of people have seen their coworkers and family members get sick or they've gotten sick themselves. And, you know, at the most deep existential level, we've all in some way kind of confronted the question of mortality, right? That 
you know, before the pandemic, you can maybe put it out of your brain, right? You just focus on what's going on that week. You focus on the plans you have for that weekend. If you have time off, yada, yada, yada. But during a pandemic, you're forced to think about the question of death, what it's going to mean if you die. Um, you know, and, and that has, I think, forced a lot of people to start asking themselves, is this worth it? Is this like, if I did die tomorrow, would I be proud of the work that I'm doing? Would I feel like I had done the most that I could with the time that I have on this earth? Um, you know, did I, was it worth the risk? Right. And so those are the kinds of questions a lot of people have been asking for some people it's meant, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to put my, uh, uh, resume up there on indeed.com and see if I can get a job that has better hours and better pay. So a lot of people have quit and they've found better jobs, right? For other people, it's meant, you know what, we're in a union shop. We actually have the ability to band together, go to the boss and say, we, we want better. We deserve better. And so that's what they've done. But really again, at, at the most elemental level, people have confronted the fact that, um, we're all going to die one day. We only have so much time on this earth. Um, we shouldn't spend it being treated like crap. We do deserve to live fulfilling lives um, that we don't feel like we're asking for too much to be able to spend time with our families. Um, if I can give just one little anecdote, um, when I interviewed uh, Sherry Renfro, who was one of the striking workers in Topeka, Kansas at the Frito-Lay plant there back in July, she said something I'll never forget, right? We, she, she was also, um, again, it's a common theme throughout a lot of these labor struggles. People during the pandemic, a lot of people were staying home. A lot of people were eating a lot more chips. And so Frito-Lay was seeing record demand, but they were treating their workers so poorly that there was such high turnover at Frito-Lay plants. So what that meant is that for the workers who stayed, they were getting pushed into forced overtime to make up for that increased demand and for the lost employees because Frito-Lay treats its workers like crap. And so you had people like Sherry Renfro who were saying like, you know, I've been working seven days a week, these long hours, and I am missing the few remaining birthdays and dinners that I have with my parents before they're dead. Like they don't have much longer. And she started crying talking about that. And she told me that when new hires uh, come on the factory floor, managers are showing them around and they'll, they'll point to the, this break room and they'll say, Oh, we have a visitation room here for, for folks who, um, you know, if you're on your break, your family can come and hang out with you for 30 minutes so you can catch oh. up. And Sherry told me, she was like, you know, I thought that sounded nice at first, but then I was like, where have I heard that term before? Mm. She was like, oh, that's what prisons have. Like, how is it a selling point that the one time you can see your loved ones when they're awake is if they come to your job in some dinky little break room to hang out for 30 minutes? Like, again, that it's I think we can all regardless of our political affiliations, we could all agree that's not good enough. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and the sort of Randian mentality that I mean, obviously has always infected some people in the, the corporate class and many people in the corporate class always, but it's become this, this sort of norm and the, the mainstream way to go about thinking this. And of course, they pay lip service to all kinds of different social justice issues and equality. And a lot of them talk about income inequality and, and all of that good stuff. But the Kroger example, again, you have an 8% rise in revenue, but they suspended hazard pay two months into the pandemic when Kroger workers are on the literally on the front lines, especially when we we had less uh, certainty about the the dangers and the risks of COVID, um, and so it, it is just sort of remarkable to to think about this. It seems as though we have a, a more depraved um, corporate class than we had in years past, and and that may seem like a naive conservative viewpoint, but business owners and executives should want their employees to um, be contribute to have families and to have a healthy work-life balance because that makes our country healthier. There's there's something very patriotic about contributing to your communities and, and all of that. And with that, Max, I want to ask you sort of a specific question. How much do you think the stimulus checks have played into what has been called the Great Resignation um, and some of these strikes and a lot of the, the movement that we've seen on this issue just actually over the last six months? Have those stimulus checks really given people um, some flexibility to be more picky? I think they have. And, and um, I guess just a, a final PS on the, the Kroger point, which I forgot to mention earlier, but it's important for anyone listening to this is two things. 
So, you know, workers at King Supers uh, with UFCW Local 7 are currently on strike, and that's thousands of workers right now uh, who are fighting over these issues with um, King Supers, which is owned by Kroger at this very moment. And so they have cited the things in the survey that that you and I have been talking about, Emily, about the the low pay, um, the, the working hours. But another thing that they have pointed to is the is the issue of safety, um, because let's not forget it was uh, what last spring that workers and customers at a King Supers in Boulder, Colorado, were murdered by uh, a, a mass shooter. And, um, you know, workers at King Supers in Local 7, they all remember that, you know, they, they they've talked about it. The, the, the union leaders have mentioned it many times in a bunch of different interviews. And on top of that, they say that, like, you know, we go in, we do our job day in, day out. Um, but we're also being asked to do a whole bunch of jobs that we didn't really sign up for. One of them being the that issue of safety, where, you know, if if workers are essentially being told to be the ones to enforce a mask, uh, uh, people wearing masks in the stores, they're the ones who get the abuse from people who don't want to put the mask up. So we don't even have to talk about people's views on masks right now. The point is, is that these workers who signed up to be a cashier or a stalker are now essentially being used as security security and are the ones taking the full force of uh, customers resistance to that. And that's not fair. Right. So anyway, to, to kind of piggyback onto that and think about the, the uh, government assistance that people have gotten over the course of the pandemic. So this is something that I think does come through, especially in this book of interviews that I have coming out uh, in a couple months with or books, because a number of people point to that um, very in a very, I think, compelling way. You know, there's there's one worker, Courtney Smith in um, Detroit, who I think put this like very articulately, but she was like, look, for a lot of people, like um, this was the first time. It's weird because they may have like left a job that they loved or left a job that, you know, they, they were fine doing, but they didn't feel safe. And so the extended unemployment benefits or the child care benefits, like those are the things that they point to. And they say that actually allowed a lot of people to stay home for the first time, maybe in their adult life. And it's weird to think that during a pandemic where people are dying, where everyone's scared, where everyone's frustrated and angry at that moment, so many workers felt like it was their first time ever where they could breathe and relax and think about what they wanted to do with their life because they had that additional support to do so. And so for as much as I have railed on Trump and Biden, you know, for not doing enough to support people, um, you know, I think that that is really significant. And a lot of workers have pointed to those uh, to that support as uh, as really vital and giving them at least enough space like you said, Emily, to think about their position, because, you know, it's easy to forget this. But before the pandemic, we don't have that. Right. I mean, like it's just day in, day out, go to work, punch in, punch out, go home, eat dinner. You know, you're, you're kind of caught up in that daily grind. Um, you don't have a whole lot of time or space to think about if this is what you want to be doing, if you want to make a big move or something like that. You just kind of coast with the momentum of the work week. That's pretty much the case for all of us. Then this major event happens and everything's turned topsy turvy. And so if you're one of the people who was fortunate enough to kind of um, take advantage of those um, benefits that allowed you to stay home and um, not have to go into work and risk your life and so on and so forth. I think it did have a real big mental impact on people. I think it did contribute to this larger groundswell of um, changes in, in people's perception of their work, of um, their value as human beings. And also, like I said, what they want to do with their lives, which for perhaps the first time ever, they they had to confront the reality that they're not going to be around uh, forever. Right. That's it really seems like a simple point. But I think that, um, yeah, when we confront our mortality, it can do it can do it can do wild things to our brains. 
coasting the daily grind i think that's so beautifully put max and it's a it's a friday night and i've kept you long enough but before we wrap i would i'd love to ask you about what you mentioned in terms of uh, union reform um bernie sanders said something really interesting this week about how the democratic party needs to basically actually serve working people which is fascinating because it's coming you know after 2016 when he gave uh, hillary clinton you know the scare of her life <laughs> um, and <laughs> there, there hasn't been i don't think i mean i think there's probably been more movement on, serious movement on this on the right than on the left in recent years. And I, I'm curious as to how, what frustration you hear from workers that, uh, especially some of these major labor unions, are essentially an appendage of the Democratic Party, which is a party that is not serving them at, at all anymore. I mean, this is not the, the 1960s. Um, this is a very different sort of environment. And the unions have really been sort of co-opted by Democratic politics. Is that something you, you hear from people? And especially, I'll add, as cultural issues and cultural divisions become more salient in those questions? You know, it's interesting because I would say a lot of times it depends on who I'm talking to and what generation they're in, like mm -hmm. old old timers and, and folks who have been with unions for a longer time tend to have slightly different answers to this than, than younger folks. Um, and I think there, there's a lot of merit to, to, to both sides of that. Or in fact, there's more than two sides. But, um, you know, on one level. And I remember, I think, talking about this when I talked a lot about my own conservative upbringing um, on the podcast, Know Your Enemy, um, a couple of years back. But like my, you know, on the Mexican side of our family, we were largely the side that did uh, my, my family, my immediate family. We were the outliers because for the majority of the Mexican side of the family, they had union jobs and they voted Democrat. On the white side of the family, we had non-union jobs and voted Republican. And so our mixed race family was kind of in the middle, but we were very much on the Republican side. Um, but, you know, my brother, the one I mentioned who worked for um, multiple franchises in California, he was the first one of my siblings to have a union job. I think it was at Rite Aid uh, in Southern California. And he hated it, right, because he felt that he was working hard and people who weren't working as hard were getting uh were, were being advanced um, sooner because they had seniority. And so, again, if you if you're someone who believes in in kind of hard work and, and advancing kind of based on that hard work, um, you're going to be really pissed off about that. And I don't think my brother was wrong for that. I mean, like, but there it was also there was no second side to that of like, well, why? How could seniority be a good thing? Like, because right now it just seems like it's just a policy there even if the policy isn't rewarding hard work, right? So this is something I hear from folks, especially younger folks who have been in union jobs, but if the union has kind of been eviscerated and, and or has let itself sort of relapse into not a fighting organization of workers who are able to advance their own needs and interests at the bargaining table, but instead a kind of top heavy bureaucracy that's cozy with management and, you know, doesn't really care about the lives of, of the rank and file. A lot of people have had that experience with unions and they have not had good experiences with that. And so there are, I think, a lot of um, different unions that are trying to inject more of that youthful energy, get more people to participate uh, at all levels of the union, not just kind of someone who's been there for 30 years and kind of has that seniority. But I think the best organizers are the ones who are trying to tap into the diversity and energy of the American workforce. And so you're seeing really exciting things happening in that vein with uh, unions like Unite Here, the ILWU. Um, but, you know, you have other unions that, um, you know, have have frankly been doing a disservice to the rank and file. And when I say they, I largely mean the the leadership. Um, I mentioned John Deere. That's a great example. Right. Even just on the surface of it. Right. When workers at John Deere overwhelmingly voted down a contract that the international leadership recommended a yes vote on. And they voted like nine over 90 percent of voting members said, no, this deal sucks. We're not taking it. How could you have that big of a divide between the rank and file who are on the ground doing the work every day and a leadership that has lost touch with the rank and file that it didn't it wouldn't realize that the workers were going to think that this deal was crap. Right. So you have a huge disconnect there. And that's what makes it so interesting and exciting, frankly, that 
the UAW just this past year held a referendum that passed and that will now enable UAW members and retirees to directly elect their union leadership. And so they will have more say over their leadership. Their leadership will have to be more responsive to what they want. Um, and that's something that UAW members desperately want after they've been seeing uh, not only um, their local unions taking concessionary contracts year at, or decade after decade, but they're also seeing, you know, union leadership get investigated by the feds and, you know, like on, on corruption charges and embezzling money. And so, like, of course, you're going to be pissed off at that. If you don't want to fix that, then, you know, you're not paying attention. And so it's, it's exciting that, you know, people are trying to take hold of these organizations that are supposed to represent them. I think we should want that, whether it's in the labor movement or whether it's in uh, electoral politics. Um, and the UAW members want what like the Teamsters have, right? Because the Teamsters, we all know the kind of uh, folklore there, the ties to the mob, <laughs> Hoffa and all that stuff. So it was because of all of that nasty stuff and the federal investigation into the union that the union was essentially forced to have more rank and file democracy and to have direct elections, which not all unions have. And actually that came to a head this past year when the Hoffa era finally ended. Um, James P. Hoffa um, stepped down. The union uh, elected a reformist ticket ahead of one of its, you know, its biggest kind of contract negotiation coming up this year with UPS. They want to fight. They want more rank and file democracy. So, we have a long way to go, I guess, is how I would put it, because even with the exciting motions that we've seen within the organized labor movement, um, union density in this country is still at like an all time low. Um, it's still very low stakes for that very reason, I think, for politicians to nominally express support for for unions. Um, but the fact that more people are um taking control of their locals that they're trying to deal with the problems that have plagued the labor movement, whether that be corruption or whether that be bureaucratic leadership apparatuses that don't listen to the rank and file. Um, you know, there, there is some exciting stuff happening there, but um, I guess the, the two things that I would say in closing, and I wanted to thank you for letting me yak on this much. I really appreciate it. No, it's fascinating. Um, <laughs> so like, I hope it's, I hope it's been useful. And so the things that I would say, um, to, to my right wing, um, siblings out there listening to this, right. Is that there's one, there, there are two things that I would encourage folks to, to think about. And this is why I focus so much on the labor movement, right. Is one, um, as I've tried to kind of make clear in the other coverage that I do, right. My allegiance is not to the democratic party or the Republican party. My allegiance is to working people, right. First and foremost, it is to improving the lot and lives of working people. And so in that vein, right. I think that one of the reasons why I find so much hope in the labor movement, that I do not find in the realm of electoral politics is that the realm of electoral politics currently provides no real pathway for working people to find collective solutions to our problems. What it does is it encourages us to see one another as the enemy, right? And, and to look askance at our neighbors, at our coworkers, even if we are all in some way kind of being screwed over by the same forces, um, we are pitted against one another and the kind of corporate media that serves one party or the other, like is that's its job is to keep us at each other's throats all the while, like we've been talking about here, most of us are getting ripped off and we're being more productive and yet more of that wealth is going to the top. Um, you know, we are, we are like experiencing uh, crises left and right, whether it be inflation, climate, you know, uh, geopolitical, what have you. And yet we're not making any movement to fix these things. And so, and electoral politics is currently providing no way for us to do that. What I find so instructive and hopeful about the labor movement is that like in places like uh, Warrior Met, the Warrior Met coal strike in Alabama, the Kellogg's picket lines uh, in different states across the country, right, is you have arenas in the workplace where you have people of all different political persuasions who have to work together to come up with collective solutions for the uh, betterment of everyone 
there. That's something that we're not really encouraged to do in almost any other realm of our lives. So there's something really special about the fact that we still have some of those arenas. The only other ones I can think of is like when I go play pickup basketball, I may be playing with a Trump voter, but for, <laughs> for 20 minutes, we have to figure out how to beat the other team, right? Like that's, that's something that happens so seldomly in our lives. And people in the labor movement are working out how to you know, address the things that divide us and, and build solidarity so that we as workers can advance our interests instead of having more stuff stolen from our pocketbooks. So I think that's one thing to really emphasize is that if you feel as defeated as so many of us do about the dead ends in our electoral realm, I think that there are other realms where people are showing us how it can be done and how you can, in fact, come to solutions together, even if there are a lot of things that divide you by race, language, politics, you know, identity, what have you. The last thing I would say, um, because you mentioned this, Emily, and it's really important, right? The question of where the, the organized labor movement fits in the political scheme is an interesting and complicated one because, um, yeah, in the heyday of organized labor in this country, like 40, 50 years ago, organized labor was the primary vehicle through which working people could impress their needs upon um, they, they, they could advance their needs and interest at the kind of bargaining table where the priorities of society were being discussed. Right. So you had private industry, you had government, you had you unions. Right. Basically, that that didn't represent everybody, but it was the main vehicle through which workers, not necessarily through a different party, could say, here's what we need. You need to take us seriously. So that has more or less gone away, right? Because now we have like union density of 10%. So the political changes that we saw was that, yeah, Republicans by and large said, okay, well, screw it to the labor movement because they almost always vote Democrat, not exclusively, because let's not forget the um, air traffic controllers, for example, uh, they, they endorsed Ronald Reagan. Um, and uh, we all know what kind of happened there. So it's not it's not a one to one thing. But by and large, you know, it was obvious that unions tended to support Democratic candidates. And in the Democratic Party, they were more of a constituency that they felt they had to appeal to. That started to change over the course of the past 40 years. A lot of people call it neoliberalism. We could talk a whole another hour about why that was. But basically, Democrats started to uncouple themselves piece by piece from the labor movement, or at least they stopped seeing the labor movement as a main constituency to go after. But what the labor movement did in response was it kind of it kind of flailed a bit and it kind of just it recognized that it still had some modicum of power in endorsing candidates even if it tended to just endorse the establishment candidates and, and hope that that put them in the good graces of, of elected officials who may or may not pass legislation that served workers. But that, I think, was more of a sign of their weakness, if anything, because that's all they could really hope for, right, was to say good things about a candidate and hope that they pay you back down the road. What I think is, again, uh, helpful, instructive and hopeful uh, about workers coming together in this country is we don't necessarily need workers in general or the labor movement as a organized entity to be a like Republican or Democratic constituency. What we need it to be is a working class constituency, a, a, a constituency of workers with hetero heterogeneous identities and political affiliations that can be expressed in neither kind of partisan terms, but they become a force that both parties have to reckon with and actually feel like they have to listen to. And so I think that both politicians on the left and right would be smart to be advocating for workers. I think that on a political um on a political level, it makes a lot of sense, but also on just a human level, it's something that we desperately need in this country. But what I think is also needed is for workers to learn from past mistakes that, you know, we we need we need to be more than just a sort of lobbying group that can appeal and uh, to this or that candidate with our endorsement. But in fact, we need to be a bulwark that represents the heterogeneous needs of working people. And it should be the parties who are fighting over our you know, endorsement. It should be the parties who like, you know, 
fear what we can do if they don't um, pay attention to us the way that they fear CEOs and, and Wall Street bankers if they don't do what they're, you know, what the party donors want. So anyway, I'll leave it at that. No, that's uh, it's just it's really helpful insight, Max, into the way that there's sort of this this should sort of transcend um, politics. And our listeners, I know, I'm sure, don't agree with um you know, maybe maybe even a lot of what they heard today, although I'm increasingly inclined to agree with a lot of it. Um, and I do read the real news every single day. Um, and again, it, I think I probably depart most uh, on, for, on foreign policy. Um, but you have great coverage of prisons, great coverage of everything across the board. And I just so appreciate you coming on the podcast to share your expertise and to share your experiences. I think it's a, a hugely important topic for people to, to hear about. So I, I'm very grateful, Max. Thank you, Emily. And, and right back at you. I really am grateful. I think that we need more um, conversations like these. And, and I can't thank you enough for being the one to get this one going. I, I admit it's something I need to be better at because, yeah, the real news, we try to focus first and foremost on that grassroots coverage. You know, we do have, you know, more left leaning politics, but I want us to have more of that um, dialogue with with folks outside of our respective echo chambers because we need it. Right. And I mean, because, again, yeah, like, you know, neither party is really serving us right now and <laughs> things are going to hell. So something's got to change. And and I do really appreciate you for having me on to, to hopefully kind of model how we can start to do that. So thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. We will have to do it again for sure. Maximilian Alvarez is the editor-in-chief of The Real News Network, and he's the host of Working People, a podcast about the lives, jobs, dreams, and struggles of the working class today. He has a book of interviews coming out in early 22 with or books titled The Work of Living, Working People Talk About Their Lives, and The Year the World Broke. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. We'll be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray.